The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week we will discuss tools, tips, and ways to radiate your best life ever, interviewing practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello and welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today we radiate compassion with Lionel Friedberg. Lionel is an Emmy award-winning film and TV producer and writer. Lionel grew up in South Africa and began his career at the first TV station in Central Africa in northern Rhodesia, which is now Zambia. In 1961, he worked as director of photography on 18 feature films and wrote, produced, and directed for National Geographic, PBS, and national broadcast and cable networks, including the Discovery Channel, A&E, and the History Channel. He's also a New York Times bestselling author and is based currently in Los Angeles, California. Hello, Lionel. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Christy. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Hi there. Quite an impressive background you've got there. Um, my goodness, I don't even know where to start. So, um, well, first of all, let's let's talk a little bit about the, the film and television. How did you get into that? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, I'll try and make it as brief as possible. I grew up in South Africa. I was an only child. And... Um, you know, I lived during during the apartheid era when when apartheid was 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 the system that ruled society in South Africa. And right. no matter how young one was, one was very conscious of of this this great division that separated the races in South Africa in a in a really nasty, in your face kind of way. Uh, separate bridges across railroad tracks, separate entrances in stores, you know, separate beaches, you know, um, on and on and on. So I grew up with that, and um, it was it 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 was it was clearly uh, an unjust system. Now, my father was originally from Northern Europe, from Latvia, and he emigrated to uh, Africa when in his in his 20s married my mother she was South African and my father was very very disturbed by that whole apartheid system and you know I, and I remember as a child 
you know, just walking down the road and you'd see a black person walking in and a cop car would stop and, and stop this person and say, show me your pass because every black person had to carry a passbook. In other words, permission to be in that area. And if they did not have their papers up to date, it was straight out of like, like out of World War II, you know, show me your papers. And if their papers were not in order, they would be thrown into the back of the vehicle um, and arrested uh, for being there illegally. And uh, either sometimes they were they were bailed out by their em, em, employers, or, but most often they were sent back to their tribal areas, far far away from the urban and industrial areas. And you and we witnessed this as as children. I saw this often. You know, coming back from school, walking down the road, da da da. And so my father eventually decided he had enough of this. And um, in 1960, he made the decision to leave the country. And uh, my father was trained as a watchmaker, the old-fashioned watchmaker, tinkering around with little little coil springs and things. And um, he took a job at a jewelry store in a tiny, tiny town in a copper mining area in what was then known as Northern Rhodesia. Now, Northern Rhodesia sits right up against the southern border of what was then the Belgian Congo today the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the Congo had burst into flames once the Belgians left in 1960 and the first Congo war began. But Northern Rhodesia was a British colony. This was during the colonial era. era. And um, there were a string of copper mines just beneath the Congo border. And my father took a job there. It was advertised in the press uh, as a watchmaker and a manager of a little jewelry store. And so he and my mother decided to go up there. I had finished my high school career. I had finished high school completely. And, you know, I was tinkering with the idea of going to college. But when they made that decision to leave the country, I said, I'm going with you. And my, my mother said, you're not doing anything of the kind. You're staying right here because you're going to college. You're going to university. You're going to have a life. You're going to create you know, a life for yourself. You're going to get a degree of something or, or other, whatever you want to do. But here was the problem. My mother exposed me to the movies when I was four years old. And I was utterly and totally and wholeheartedly in love with the movies. And when I was 11, I was given a little movie camera, a used one by a cousin of mine. And I started making films for my school and for my my friends, birthday parties, sports meetings, the debating club, you know, things like that. And so I was making films and I thought, when I finished my high school career, my folks are going to move into the middle of darkest Africa. Here's my opportunity to go and make wonderful adventure films like Tarzan and the African Queen and King Solomon's Mines and all those wonderful movies that I had seen as a kid, you know. And how naive can you be, you know. Um, yeah. So I, I went with them. I followed them. My father went up first. And then I followed them. And when I arrived up there, I was absolutely mortified because I looked around me. There was a big copper mine, a small town, and jungle and bush from horizon to horizon. Certainly no film industry and no opportunities for someone with ambitions like I had. But out of, out of, out of the blue, one day, like manna from heaven, 
became my salvation because I found in the local newspaper, there's a small newspaper that served all these little towns, and they were advertising for staff for this new television station that was being constructed in one of these towns for the for the for the for the miners, for the for the copper mining community. Um, and so I applied. Now the, the main staff were all coming from Europe mainly from England, but they were looking for people like cleaners and drivers and things like that. And I went along and I had an interview and I said, I don't care what I do. I'll sweep the floor. I will lick the floor clean. You've got to give me a job. And they did. And so my career began at this little station uh, in Central Africa, which served a variety of purposes. In the mornings, we had educational broadcasts in vernacular languages for kids in local schools living in the bush because there weren't enough teachers to go around. And then in the afternoons, we would have what they called cultural programming for the local ethnic tribes and groups in the, in the area. And, you know, these people would arrive in the, by the truckload in the afternoon with their drums and their rattles and their beads and their grass skirts playing African tribal music in the studio. And it was astonishing. I was exposed to all this amazing culture. And then at five o'clock, the world changed because then we would revert to programming for the white community. And what would we, what did we have? We'd had Leave It to Beaver and we'd have Gunsmoke and Bonanza and everything that you had here, you know, just a couple of weeks behind the US as well as a lot of programming uh, from from England, so it was this weird. I lived in the surreal world of all these, you know, d- diverse cultures, mm-hmm. and we had lots of live shows in the studio. And um, I, I managed to get myself behind one of those studio cameras within six months, and I was good because I remember I'd been making ki- films ever since I was a kid, and I was quick. I could find compositions very very quickly. And they were impressed by that. So, you know, I, I was doing extremely well. And, you know, my, my career there lasted, um, well, it went on longer than that. But the first three years were absolutely amazing. And then one day, all of us, wasn't a big stuff, maybe 30 people altogether, uh, we all got pink slips. We were all fired. And the reason was that it was time for Northern Rhodesia to bring down the British flag, to bring down the Union Jack, and Northern Rhodesia was now going to become the independent republic of Zambia with a black government, and a new flag was going up the flagpoles. And as soon as that happened, the new government decided all the whites in the television station had to go. All those jobs had to be taken over by local people, which we fully understood and accepted. However, my dilemma was, what was I going to do with my life? I had no idea what to do with myself, you know. Um, so anyway, um, we had a wonderful um, uh, young man of the Bemba tribe. He was not much older than me working for us. I was living with my folks. And um, the next morning, I got back from the station very late that night after I got this notice that we all had to leave. And the next morning, I, you know, I said to him, I said, David, um, you know, a terrible thing has happened. And he said, what? And I said, you know, um, I've been fired from my job at the, at the television station. And he said, oh, no, no, that's, that's terrible. He and I were good buddies. He, he was very interested in photography. And he and I, on my days off, you know, we'd go into the bush and we'd, we'd take pictures and 
things like that, and local tribes and whatever else. And he said, that's terrible. So what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm in a dilemma. I don't want to go back to South Africa. I don't want to go back to apartheid. Although South Africa did have a, a very good film industry at the time, and it was thriving, but the apartheid system was still alive and well in all its ugliness. And I didn't particularly want to go back to that. So I said to him, I don't know what to do. And he said, let me see if I can find someone who may be able to help you make up your mind what to do or point you in the direction. And I said, please do whatever you can. I mean, what could he offer me? What on earth, uh, what options were available to me through, through him? But I trusted the guy implicitly. And two days later, he and I were driving through the bush in my little beat-up VW Beetle um, on a dirt road going to a little African village, a tribal village. And at the end of the village was a single little tiny house. And he said, that's the place we're going to. In there is someone who will tell you what to do. You have to listen very carefully to her. And I said, who is she? And he said to me, "Just you just listen to what she tells you. I had no idea what to expect. And uh, he went and knocked at the door. And this very, 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 very old, shrunken little old woman, she was also a member of the Bemba tribal group, arrived at the door, opened the door, and she had wrinkles all over her face. Her eyes were sort of glazed over with age. I don't think she could see terribly well. Anyway, she welcomed us into her home, and there were basically two rooms, a front room and, and a room at the back. And when we went inside, there was a grass mat on the floor, very spartan furniture, but lots of shelving around. And in the, in, on these shelves were containers of weird things, uh, barks, herbs, berries, leaves, skins of wild animals, uh, bones, stones, pebbles, gravel. I had no idea what they were. The smells were astonishing. And I, you know, I sat down and on this little grass mat was a little bag, a little African uh, um, animal skin bag of an antelope of some sort. And now she spoke no English. So David was my interpreter. And she said, sit down. And she took this bag and she opened it up and she told me to breathe into it blow into it and say my name which i did and then she brought out a little tin of snuff which is ground tobacco leaves that you know and she said take some take a pinch of that and make an offering into the bag that's for your ancestors you are making this offering for your ancestors and then you shake the bag and you turn it upside down and then she said i will tell you what you need to know which I did. I turned the bag upside down. And what fell out were these, a variety of little bones and stones and pebbles and trinkets and things like that. Most of them were animal bones. Now, the, 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 the paradigm, the, 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 the healing paradigm of, of, of people who are either known in Zambia, they're called ngangas, healers, which is what she was, or soothsayers or fortune tellers, whatever you want to call them. Um, these herbal doctors, um, they use a variety of animal bones that come from hyena, from the hyena, from a crocodile, from a lion, uh, from certain antelopes. So they're small bones, not big bones, not big, chunky, you know, big, um, beefy bones. And then lots of little other pebbles and things that she'd added to her collection. And the, and the, the principle is this. The bones, when I, the patient or the, the person consulting her, 
throw the bones onto the floor, they will fall in a certain pattern. And the belief is that my ancestors are influencing the way the bones and the stones fall onto the mat. And then the nanga or the, the, the healer, her or his ancestors, interpret what those bones may mean. So a lion bone, for example, may mean strength. But if it's upside down, it's weakness. And if it's fall, if, a, if another bone crosses it, you know, it all means different things to, to the person interpreting the bones. So her ancestors were reading the pattern of the bones that my ancestors had influenced as they fell on this grass mat. And the very first thing she did was, and I tell you, uh, her eyes were very glazed. She was a very, very old lady. And she looked down like this, and suddenly she covered her eyes, and she said, oh, I can't see. And yeah, I got a shock. So did David. And she said, what are these very, very bright lights? I can't see anything. And David says, she's seeing bright lights. Well, what was she seeing? She was seeing the lights of the television studio that I was working in. Oh, my goodness. Now, she had no idea what I did for a living. She had no idea about my background. And when I heard her say that, I thought, you better pay attention to what this little old woman is going to tell you, because there's more to this than a breadbasket. This lady is seeing things, and you better listen real good to what she has to say. And what she, what she did for the next hour or so was she just spurted out all this information that David tried his best to keep pace with her. It was just flowing from her. And he, she told me so many things. I tried my best to make notes of all of them. It was impossible. But I sort of, uh, as time went by, I remembered, you know, most of what she told me. And the most un unbelievable thing about it was that just about every single thing she told me over the next 60 years came true. She told me that I would be married twice. She told me how many children I would have. No, numbers. She told me actually specific numbers. Um, and one of the things she said to David was, and this is what I was waiting to hear. She said to, he, uh, to him, he's going to cross the big water. Now, remember, this little old lady probably lived in the bush all her life. And Zambia is a landlocked country. There's no ocean there. Yeah. She'd probably never seen the ocean. I mean, she'd probably never been more than 20 miles away from where she was born. Um, and she said to him, he will cross the big water. I had no idea what that meant. And he will go into that direction. And she points towards the north. You know, she leant over her corner like this, her shoulder. She would go in that direction. In other words, to the north. And then she told him things like, one day, as part of his work, he will go to a place where there are more big lights and lots of famous people. He will do work there. She said to him, he will also one day go to a world where there is no color. It is a strange world where there is only white, no color. He will one day, as part of his work, go into the bush and he must be very careful because his life it will be in danger from the great beast. I, have, I had no idea what any of this meant. None of it. And it's only as they came to pass, as only as they came to be fulfilled that I realized what she was talking about. One of the most amazing things was she said to him, one day he will meet a man 
who was very, very close to the most evil man who ever lived. And when I heard that, I thought, my God, what is she talking about? And years and years later, all of that made made sense to me. And I can tell you what, what she meant by that, you know, yes. in, in a, a, a later on what she meant. But um, so let's let's cut. Uh, let's let's just uh, um, give give some perspective to all of this so that your viewers can know what she was talking about. The very first thing that that that, that came to pass uh, these predictions that she made was this crossing of the big water. So what I did, um, uh, obviously I was not going to be able just to remain uh, in, in Zambia on, on, the, on the copper belt because there was nothing for me to do. So I did return to South Africa. I did be, uh, join the film industry and worked on films there, but um, it didn't take me very long and I decided to emigrate to North America. And uh, the way you went those days, and I'm talking about the year 1966 now, uh, is you went by sea. Not You didn't fly those days, particularly if you have lots of bags. You know, you're emigrating, you, you, so you go by sea. There were ships. People traveled by sea those days. And so I was traveling from Cape Town to Southampton in England, and from there I was going to take a ship across the North Atlantic to, uh, to North America. And halfway on the voyage from Cape Town to Southampton, it's a 14-day journey. I used to go up to the top of the ship every night and look at the sky. I'm a sky watcher. I always watch the sky. I'm fascinated by the heavens. And I used to go up there every night, and the stars would change night by night. The patterns of stars would change because we were slowly moving from a southern hemisphere to a northern hemisphere. And so the sky was changing every single night. And you could be physically aware of the fact that you're actually moving across the planet. It was an extraordinary awareness that suddenly hit me one night, you know. Uh, and there is, uh, there's a pattern of stars in the southern sky called the Southern Cross. It's as prominent as the Big Dipper is here in the north. And uh, every night the Southern Cross was sinking lower and lower behind the horizon, behind the ship. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going from the southern part of the world to the north. And then it hit me on the big water. It's the Atlantic Ocean. That's what she meant. Now, I'm quite sure that she didn't really know what she was seeing as she was having all these visions, this little old lady, but she just described to me what she was seeing. And this was the first time, this is the first thing that came true. I was traveling from the north to the south on the big water, emigrating to a new life and a new world, you know, and many of the other things that she told me, like, for example, let's talk about that white world that she predicted. In 1991, I was working on a show for PBS here in the States, and it was for a science series called The Infinite Voyage. And what we were doing, we went down with a scientific research team to Antarctica to, to, to talk about and investigate the ozone hole and the possibility of global warming. They didn't call it climate change back in those days. It was still global warming, you know. Uh, so if you want to take the temperature of Mother Earth and find out if the planet is unhealthy or not doing so well, you go to a place like the Antarctic. There are no cities. There are no population uh, uh, densities of, pop of human population. It's pretty pristine. But if you measure the, the, the acidity in the water in the oceans, is that going up 
Is that above normal? Is the ozone hole increasing? Are temperatures going up? And you can actually find out whether the atmosphere is has got more uh, uh, um, greenhouse-causing gases if you drill into the ice. Basically, you're drilling into, in, 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 into time. You're going backwards in time because as the ice builds up, it traps air bubbles. And in all of these little air bubbles, it traps parts of the atmosphere that date back centuries. And so if you drill an ice core, you can compare, oh, round down here, the CO2 level was this, and look how it goes up as the years go by. So you can see all of these things. And that's what the show was about. And, you know, it was done with the uh, under the auspices of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. And um, it was uh, an extraordinary, fascinating trip. Uh, it was amazing to be down there for, I think it was six or seven weeks. And it was Christmas Eve, 1991, either 1990 or 1991. I can't quite remember the exact year. And it was Christmas Eve. Now, we're on this big research ship. The crew are all Norwegians. The scientists on board are all Americans from various universities, and my film crew, and you know a bunch of other people. And the captain decided to stop the ship that night in order to celebrate Christmas Eve. Now, remember, we are so far south, and the month was December that the sun never set. It was perpetual daylight because in the south, at that time of the year, at that far south. You know, the sun doesn't go beneath the horizon. It's like an hour of twilight and the rest of it is daylight all the time. So right about midnight, everybody was very happy on board the ship. You know, a lot of partying going on and whatever else. And I decided to go and sit up on the deck and make my notes. I used to keep copious notes all the time. You have to. As a documentary filmmaker, you've got to write everything down, you know, every single day almost like a, like a diary you keep your notes and i went up to the uh, to the uh, to the deck of the of the ship put on my overcoat and i i just sat there glaring out at this world and the sea was covered by pack ice so it was solid it was a solid white ocean there was no water to be seen at all it was all ice and remember we were on an icebreaker so as you move forward you break the ice and that's how you keep going forward but when you're stationary, you're surrounded by all of this ice. And I said, I tried to describe the world as to how I would write the narration later on for the film. And I said, it's like living in a translucent white egg because you could not see where the horizon ended and the sky began. Everything was white. And it suddenly hit me. Oh, my God. That's what she meant. I'm in a world where there is no color. It's all white. She foresaw this decades before it happened. So on and on and on, you know, there were things like that 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 never stopped happening. As to the most evil man who ever lived, I'll just throw that one out very, very quickly. The year was 1984, and I was doing a film about the history of South African Airways. Now, South African Airways was one of the great, really a very, very good international airline. And it pioneered flight throughout the continent of Africa. And it is an extraordinary story. And so it was the 50th anniversary of the airline. And in order to tell that story, it was very, very exciting because those were pioneering days. Air travel in darkest Africa through the jungle. That's what the movie was about. And in 1934, just after the airline was founded, they bought three new airliners from a company in Germany, the latest state-of-the-art aircraft. 
each one of them sat 14 passengers. Now, to fly those things all the way from the factory in Germany, all the way down the continent of Africa to Johannesburg is a major deal. You know, no radio communications along the way, no alternative airfields, et cetera, et cetera. You know, weather forecasting didn't exist. Primitive radio on board the aircraft, no radar, you know. Nevertheless, they did it. It took two weeks to do that, and they did it. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if I could find someone who was alive at the time as part of that flight? And my researcher, bless her heart, she actually found out that one of the pilots on one of those delivery flights was still alive. And I said, I have to interview the guy. She said, yeah, you know, he's, he, he's retired now. He lives in a small town near Munich in Bavaria. He speaks no English. Uh, so you'll have to do the interview in German and then do a dub it afterwards, which is fine. But he's like 89 years old. But his memory is still very good. And this with the facility of the of the German government, we, we located the guy and he agreed to do the interview. But not only that, he apparently was a very keen amateur cinematographer in his day. And he took a, a, made, made a movie of that flight. And there was a copy of that film in a laboratory, in a lab in Frankfurt. Now, it doesn't get better than that, you know. Right. So now we're shooting in Germany as part of that, that series that I was doing on the history of the airline. And we, we find the film and we select the pieces that we want to use in our documentary. We got permission to do that. And uh, in two vans, including a member of the German foreign office who was our facilitator who arranged this whole interview, we traveled by road from Frankfurt down to Munich to go and interview this man whose name was Hans Bauer, B-A-U-R. And I'm going to try and make it as short as I possibly can. But anyway, we're traveling down on these autobahns. It's just amazing. No speed limit. You know, you can do 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and those German, those German autobahns are incredible. And that we, we checked into a very small hotel that night before we interviewed the guy. And the man from the foreign office... Uh, he had dinner with me as, you know, with the rest of the crew. And he, he stuck around. He said, have some wine, you know, let's, let's, let's drink a bit. And I said, absolutely, let's do that. So we, we finished a couple of bottles of really good German Rhine wine. And around about midnight, he said to me, um, how much do you really know about this guy that you're going to interview tomorrow, Hans Bar? You know, do, how much of his background do you know? And I said, well, not very much. Why? What is there to know? And he said, well, he has a war, war injuries. Well, that didn't surprise me because he must have flown for the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force during the war. And, you know, I, I wasn't surprised to hear that he had a, an injury. Maybe he got shot. Who knows? But the guy said, I, I don't want you to discuss World War II with him. The only thing I want you to discuss is, is that trip down Africa in the 30s. That's all. Please try to not go beyond that subject and i said sure I, I won't but he wasn't satisfied he hadn't he wasn't and he sidled up a little closer to me and over the top of his glass he said to me after and this is we'd had a, another bottle of wine to drink and he said but how much do you really know about the guy and i said what else is there to know and he said do you know that he was adolf hitler's personal pilot oh my the evil man. So I, I suddenly thought, 
oh, you know, I was I sobered up immediately. And uh, I thought, how am I going to, to deal with this? I've interviewed a lot of people in my time, but never anybody quite like that. Um, right. How am I going to handle this one? You know, um, nevertheless, the next day we go to this Hans Bauer's house and we welcomed into his house by his wife, his third wife, by the way. Um, and she was a, a sweetheart, spoke no English, welcomed us into the home and, you know, and eventually Hans Bauer comes down the staircase with a cane. And I assumed that was because of his war injury that the man mentioned to me. He had a gummy leg, a bad leg, an artificial leg. Oh. Anyway, uh, the man from the foreign office uh, introduces himself to Hans Bauer, and then he introduces this Hans Bauer to me. And, you know, um, it was the strangest thing because it swept over me like a tidal wave when I shook his hand. Talk about six degrees of separation. This was one degree of separation. How many times had Adolf Hitler actually shaken that very same hand that I was shaking now? That's how close I was to one of the most, uh, you know, mass murderers of all time. Um, you know, a madman and uh, and not a very nice person. <laughs> right. No. And I'm and I'm shaking this hand, and you know, that's like almost being in contact with with uh, with the with the guy Hitler, and apparently they were very very good friends, and not only that. But in an interview, after we'd finished our interview, he tells me that he and Adolf Hitler were very, very good buddies from way back when he married his first wife. Adolf Hitler gave him his wedding party in Adolf Hitler's apartment in Munich. That's how close these two guys were. Um, and anyway, we do the interview and he gives me an, an excellent interview. It's all in German. Of course, the, the, the man from the foreign office asks the questions. I, I ask the question. He interprets it for me. The man speaks in German. We were going to dub it later on. And when the interview was done, you know, I said, thank you very much. Um, we're finished. Thank you. I thanked him for, for his time and what he did. And I got 15 really good minutes out of him to use in the film. And then he says to me, he gets up and he's sort of on his cane, very unsure. He says to me, come, I want to show you something in German. And I, I could understand enough German to know what he meant. So I followed him and he takes me to a, um, to a photograph at the end of the living room uh, near the bathroom. And he points to the photograph. And in the photograph is him in his uniform and Adolf Hitler and one of the aircraft that we've been talking about in the film. And the reason why it took me to show the photograph is because he wanted to point out the photo, the, the, the airplane to me. He said, you know, that's one of the airplanes that we've been talking about, and this is me. And then he didn't mention who the other man was in the image. <laughs> and he looked at me and I looked at him and he said, in German, he said, do you want to know about him too? And I said, yeah, bitte, please, yes. I would like to know about him too. And he invites me back to the couch. He asks his wife to bring snacks and drinks and lots of good schnitz and sliver, uh, you know, sliverwitz and, and Kirschwasser, good German alcohol. And he and I sat on the couch while the rest of the crew tidied up the cables and you know, wrapped up from the shoot. 
And then he asked his wife to bring the photograph albums, which she did, about six or seven leather-bound photograph albums. And these albums were a collection of images of the inner ranks of the Third Reich. Adolf Hitler and Goebbels and Goering and everybody, they're all in these images. And in a lot of these photographs is this guy because he and Adolf Hitler were very good friends. And, you know, Hitler trusted nobody because he always knew his life was threatened or in danger. But this man was his confidant. And they were very, very tight. And so he shows me all of these images and it is like a revelation of, of, of everybody who actually ran the Third Reich uh, and um, this man describes all of these these images to me. And, you know, it was extraordinary. And after a couple of hours of this, you know, I said to the crew, I said, okay, we, we're, we're done now. Let's pack the bags and let's pack the vans and, and leave. And he was a sweetheart. And apparently the war injury that he had was not because he was a pilot, but he was in the bunker with Adolf Hitler in Berlin the night the, uh, the same day that night Hitler took his life Hitler said to him that day he said uh, I want you because he he he, he was the, the, the there was a possibility that he could take Hitler and and get him out of the country mm-hmm. uh, and he said uh, he said to him let me let me let's let's get you to an airfield I'll get you out of here and Hitler said no the war is done the, the war is finished the war it's over I'm taking my life tonight. I want you to get out of here. Take this. And he gave him a painting, which he rolled up and put in his backpack. And he said, leave, leave now, because I am going to take my life tonight as well as Eva Braun. That's his wife. He'd married Eva Braun. Uh, and they, they committed suicide that night. So he was running through the streets when the Russian troops were invading Berlin to liberate Berlin. And that's how he got shot by a Russian, a Russian rifleman, uh, and and he was arrested by the Russians, and he was sent to a gulag for fifteen years, because the Russians always believed that he knew what had happened to Adolf Hitler. They didn't believe that Hitler took his life, and anyway, so that's one of the reasons why I was told to not discuss the Second World War because it was obviously a. Uh, a, a painful, difficult memory for him because of that incident. But I mean, this guy told me everything, and he was a he was a sweetheart. I and I tried very, very hard to not think of him as a Nazi or as Adolf Hitler's personal friend, but as a pilot. And I tried to think about him, you know, to keep it in within the world of aviation. Difficult though that was, I did manage to do that. And uh, but it was a very, very otherworldly experience, let me tell you. And at the end of the day, we drove away from from the house and I looked through the rear back of the vehicle as we as we left. And he was standing outside his house with his wife waving two little old people just waving goodbye to their guests. You know, two sweet old people. And I that's how I saw him. That's who he was. But as we rounded a corner and the image of this guy dis, you know, disappeared behind the corner, I suddenly realized what? that's what that woman meant decades ago. Yes, definitely. You will meet a man who knew the most evil man who ever lived. That's what's just happened to me, you know. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. Um, yeah. And so you've had some incredibly 
intense experiences and um, just seen beautiful, wondrous things. And, um, you know, I know that during some of your work, strange supernatural and psychic phenomena yes, yes, were also oh, yes. part of it. Can yeah, absolutely. That? Well, you know, I, I, I um, in the seventies, I did a wonderful series uh, in South Africa called "The Tribal Identity." The writing was on the wall for the white government in South Africa. They knew that Nelson Mandela would have to be released from prison. They knew that apartheid days were numbered, and so they were preparing white society for the fall of racism. In other words, for a multiracial society. And it was their decision to make a series to introduce white society to their, their black neighbors, the people that shared the country with them. Right. And so I did a series called The Tribal Identity. And what it was was really a, a very hard, good, deep look at all the major tribal groups of South Africa, their culture, their spiritual beliefs, their, uh, their everything about them, you know, their, their, their rituals. And it was extraordinary. And during the course of the making of that series, which I did with an anthropologist by the name of Peter Becker, an, an amazing man, who, by the way, foresaw his own death. He he died in Arizona doing research, and he knew that that was going to happen. I can't tell you the amount of times I've worked with people who who foresaw things. Um, it's just been a, a litany of, of of incredible events. But this, but Peter knew that he when he when he came to Arizona to do that particular research trip, he knew that he was not coming back, and he told me that. But anyway, we did the series together on the tribes. And during the making of that series, I met a lot of these shamans of these various tribes. And they call themselves, as I think I mentioned earlier, Sangomas. And each tribal group, the Sangoma practice is slightly different, but the, 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 the basics are the same. They can read your illness. They can foretell. They can tell you what's wrong with you. They can prescribe medicine, which they call muti. And they make up medicine themselves, medication by grinding up leaves and barks and herbs and roots and whatever else, which they collect from the forests. And a lot of the stuff is very, very powerful stuff. And it works. And I saw it myself time and time again. I saw two people uh, exorcised, uh, supposedly of, of evil spirits. Uh, we filmed that. Um, I filmed rituals of uh, transition from from childhood to maturity, um, uh, rites of passages with these tribal groups. And it was an astounding experience to go through all of this because you basically I was, you know, I, I went into the heart of the of these tribes and their beliefs. And it was an, a, a privilege beyond anything I can ever begin to um, to describe. Um, they let they let me into uh, to 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 schools uh, for initiates in the bush uh, that most people would never see. You know, young men and young women who are transitioning into into adulthood from childhood and being told about the rights of 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 what 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 an, what an adult uh, how an adult should behave in the in the tribe. I mean, it was just astonishing, and. Um, so during the course of that, I met a number of these Sangomas, these healers. And every time I, I filmed one of these uh, Sangomas doing their thing, either foretelling a future event or, or, or diagnosing an illness or answering a patient's question, a concept, someone who can come and say, my husband left me. Where has he gone? Where will I find him? Person throws the bones, says, ah, oh, if you go 
three mountains away and you go to that village over there, that's where he is. He's got a new woman and his life. That's where you'll find him. That kind of thing. I mean, they wear lots of hats and they do all sorts of extraordinary things and they do it extremely well. Today, by the way, that when, when, when apartheid was, uh, was still uh, being practiced by the whites, they would, the white community would frown down upon these people. And, you know, they would say, oh, those are just witches, witchcraft, you know, witch doctors was the, the, the disparaging term that was used for them. But they were not. They were far more than that. And I wanted to show white audiences that these people offered so very much more than that, which I think we did. And I had three shows about their spiritual beliefs and their, their, their healing practices that just blew people away. They had no idea what was going on. And, and so um, today in South Africa, this method of healing is officially recognized by the Department of Health you know, yes. alongside Western allopathic medicine. And if you, you if you go to a teacher and you don't just become a Sangoma, you have to learn at the foot of a master, someone who knows their stuff. You spend years learning your craft and how to do this. And then eventually you are ordained as a Sangoma and it's recognized now by the, by the Department of Health. And whether you're living in a big, big city like Johannesburg, or any of the other big cities in South Africa, you can go and visit a Sangoma as easily as you can go and visit a doctor in a hospital. And that's what people do. Support for the Radiate Wellness Podcast is made possible in part by listeners like you. Would you like to support this podcast? Visit radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast for more information. And now, during the, the filming of this series, some interesting mm. things happened with your equipment. Yeah. Uh, you know, this sounds like, like, like uh, you know, like, like um, something out of an Indiana Jones movie. And in, in, in some ways, it really was like that. But we went down to a sacred lake. There's a particular tribe called the Venda. Uh, who are not related to any of the other tribal groups in, in South Africa. They, they're a distinctly different group who probably emigrated down from East Africa or from the northern part of Africa and settled in South Africa. And they live right up on the border of what is now Zimbabwe. They're wonderful people. They have intense spiritual beliefs. And one of the uh, rituals that they do every five years, well, they, this is in the 70s. I'm not sure if they still do it now, but every five years, they would do a very, very special tribute to the great spirit of the tribe. They would honor the great spirit. And it was always the ancestor of the tribe. Remember, in, in the African paradigm, it's always through the ancestors. Even uh, when you talk about religion and you talk about God or whatever it may be, it's always done through the ancestors and so um, once every five years they go down to the sacred lake where no one is allowed to go and they make a tribute to the great ancestral spirit of this but of their of their tribe by pouring uh, homemade beer into the waters i believe in the olden days they used to sacrifice humans but i'm not sure if that's true or not but that's what rumor has it that they used to do sacrifices but that's not done anymore of course uh, and and then they do wonderful songs and dances and they basically acclaim and proclaim and recognize the ancestral spirits and they ask for this great spirit's blessings upon the tribe and we were given the opportunity we've just happened to fall into the right window 
of the time was just right for us to film one of these events. And I remember they only happened once every five years. And to get down to the lake was quite an ordeal. Let me tell you, with all our gear and all our equipment and going down these steep slopes to this enormous glittering lake down in the bottom of this gorgeous valley um, was, it was a, you know, a, a major expedition to get down there. And um, we were told that this is sacred ground. That's why nobody goes there. And when we got down to the bottom, we were asked to remove our shoes. In the same way as, you know, many, many religions in the world uh, remove, remove their shoes. The Hindus do that. The Muslims do it. Moses was asked to do that when he came across the burning bush. Take off thy shoes from off thy feet for the land upon which thy standeth is holy ground. You don't wear shoes on holy territory. And so we had to remove our shoes. But remember, it's a lot of pebbles and stones and thorns in the area. And Peter Becker, my anthropologist, my host, stubbed his toe on one of these pebbles. And he was hopping around on one leg, you know, out, 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 out. And it was kind of infectious because we all started to, to giggle. Uh, the crew started to giggle. Now, the man who was leading this ritual was a very, very, very old, and a man who must obviously he was well over a hundred years old because we tried to ask him questions about his childhood and the things that he was tell us were deep back in South African history. So we knew if he witnessed these things, he was over a hundred years old. And uh, he was the, the, the main man who was brought down from the hills to lead this ritual. And he would, he, what he did, he held up his hands like this and, you know, chanted out to the lake. And then there were drums going, and then these young people would pour the sacred beer into the waters. It was a very, very solemn affair. But as Peter stubbed his toe and was hopping around like a clown, we started giggling. And that wasn't the way to behave, not during a ceremony like that. And while this old man was going, doing his things, and he was maybe 20 feet away from where the camera was, and Peter was in front of me, supposedly explaining what was going on. But he said he was sipping, you know, oh, 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 you know. My assistant, or one of one of the assistants, started to laugh. The sound man started to laugh. I started to giggle, and the old man stopped chanting. And all he did was he turned around, and he looked at us. And at that very moment, the camera stopped working, the tape recorder stopped. Remember, we were shooting film. The sound recording equipment stopped working. All our equipment died. Everything electronic that we had stopped instantly. So our technical guy, who was a member of the sound department, he comes out with his voltmeter and he measures everything. The batteries are fine. There's power in the cables. Everything is fine, but nothing is working. It just stopped dead. And I said, oh my God, what is all this about? And, you know, the laughter stopped immediately. And we had a, um, a, an interpreter with us, um, what, what we call a fixer, a guy who arranges things. Um, and I said to him, please, uh, can you ask, go and ask the headman over there, you know, uh, if, we, they, if the priest could stop doing this until we fix our equipment, which he did. And the, uh, the guy went and asked the old man, and the old man just shook his head, and he, he whispered into his ear. And, he, and the message that we got back was, the ancestors are displeased with our behavior, 
and they are not going to allow us to film the rest of the ritual. Oh. Well, I thought I was going to have a heart attack because this was an opportunity of a lifetime, and now this is happening. We've got to fix this. We've got to get this right. I, I, you know, I, what's going on here? And Peter and I consulted one another, and Peter said, something is going on. Something supernatural is happening. There's no question about that. Nothing made sense at all. Anyway, we sent profuse apologies back to the old man. And we said, all of us, we, we really are deeply, deeply sorry for the way we behaved. We had no intention of offending anybody. Uh, please excuse us. And the old man sort of thought about it for a minute, turned back towards the lake again, put up his arms, started his chanting, and the drumming started. And the minute he started the chanting again, all the equipment started to work again. The tape recorder reels started to turn. Remember, we're talking about 70s technology here. The tape recorder started to work. My film camera started to run. Everything began to work. The microphone became alive. It's as though a, a curse was lifted. You know, and um, talk about the supernatural. It's as real as this desk that I'm sitting at. There is more to the world than we know. <laughs> that, there is no question. Absolutely. And you've even filmed a UFO at one point too. Yes. Yeah. This was this was in uh, again. This was in 1966 when I was working in Canada. We were filming in the state of in the province of Saskatchewan. And the film was uh, a documentary about the history of housing in Canada, how urban areas develop around various industries, be it agriculture or oil or coal or whatever it may be. And we, were, we had to film at a potash plant. Potash is dug out of the ground. It's a white material that is ground up and used in fertilizer. And, the, and when, when they mine this stuff, it makes a lot of dust uh, but the, the point about the film is that housing was beginning to, to grow around this potash plant, this mine, you know. And so we had a day that we were going to film at this potash plant. And uh, it was a very small crew, just three of us. And we stayed at a motel in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, Saskatchewan is as flat as a tabletop. Uh, and the, the potash plant must have been about 30 miles away from where we were staying. Nothing else except cornfields. And um, we could see the horizon. We could see the potash plant because you could see the dust rising up from this uh, plant. And um, by the time we got to the to the plant, uh, about you know half an hour or an hour later, the guy at the main gate said to us, "You you fellas, you better get down to the parking lot because there's something sitting up in that dust cloud up there." We said, "You know, like what?" And he said, "We don't know what it is, but you know, go go down, take a look for yourselves." So we did, and the director, the director had to meet the manager of the plant to discuss the day's filming. But I stayed at those were the days of station wagons. I had we had I unpacked the station wagon, put up the tripod, put the camera up, and put on the longest telephoto lens that we had. And a couple of the other members of the plant came up, to, you know, just to to chat with me. And they said, "Yep, there's definitely something up in that in that cloud up there in that dust." I said, have you seen it? And they said, well, every now and again, when the, when the breeze comes up, you can see there's something metallic up there. I said, really? And I, you know, trying to focus up on the cloud, it was difficult because focusing on dust is hard to do. Um, 
But a slight breeze did come up, and I caught a glint of metal, just a flash like that. And I focused on that. And then the breeze increased a little bit, and it revealed this disk, this big disk, just sitting up there in this cloud. My with, goodness. With a triangular, uh, almost like, like, a, like a triangle beneath it, connected to the disk with three prods, like almost like a tripod. It was astonishing and um, huge, as big as 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 a jumbo jet. Now those were before the days of of jumbo jets, but that's how big this thing was. Right. And um, I immediately ran film. I I, I ran film on, mm-hmm. on on this, not oh. knowing what it was. There was no sound. You couldn't see anything. There were no windows. There was nothing. But it was very 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 weird and very very eerie to just see the silent object sitting, this metallic object just sitting up there in the sky. And I ran about 150 feet of film, and then, you know, the breeze came up, covered it up, and that was it. I stopped running the camera. And uh, when the director uh, and the manager, you know, eventually said, all right, let's get get on with the day's shooting, uh, the director said to me, separate that film from everything else, put it aside. Uh, so you don't mix it up with our with our production shooting and just label it separately. So when you send that to the lab in Montreal, just tell them to keep it for our return, which of course I did. And the way we used to send film back in those days were by rail. Uh, you would go to the nearest rail junction and send it by freight all the way to Montreal. You know, there were no airports in these small towns. There was, but there was always a railroad track. And um, so I sent the film back to Montreal and I labeled this one particular can, hold for our arrival, unknown object. That's all I said. So we know we finished filming the documentary. Weeks later, we get back to Montreal and uh, now it's time to look at the dailies, look at the, the, the stuff that we'd shot and you know hours and hours of looking at footage of small towns and farms and whatever else, as well as this potash plant. And when all the film was finished uh, at about three o'clock that afternoon, um, the projectionist from the back yelled, what about this other can here that says hold for arrival, um, unknown object, do you want me to project that? So the head of the camera department said, what's that? And I said, yeah, yeah, you got to see this. So they put that film on and they projected it on the screen. And there it was, as clear as a bell. Exactly what I had seen was this, this disc, this, this strange craft. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, you know, there were a number of people in the audience, including experts uh, to do with the the, 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 the the subject of the film that we were doing, which was all about housing and urban development. And they were as astonished as we were. But anyway, the head of the camera department said, we should send that down to the U.S. because they have a, they have a, uh, the United States Air Force has a thing called Project Blue Book, where they are investigating UFOs. Maybe that's what this thing is. Let's send it to them and see what it is. Now, here's the kicker of the whole story. There are two different kinds of film that we used to use those days. One was negative film, where you shoot on negative and then you make a positive print. You make a positive and you keep your negative as your master. You don't touch that. That always, you know, rain stays in the lab. And there was another kind of film called reversal. So the same film that you use in the camera you can actually use later on because it gives you a positive image directly from the camera. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, a film stock made by Eastman Kodak and was called reversal film. So in other words, the camera original, you could project 
and watch on the screen as a positive image. And so here was our mistake. We sent them the only copy we had. We sent them the original to Project Blue Book, which was at Wright Patterson Air Force Base yeah. uh, in 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 Ohio. And um, weeks go by, and we hear nothing from them. It was the the, the material. The, the film was uh, was sent by a courier, not FedEx or UPS. It was before those days. But anyway, we know that they received it because they signed for it. And one day I was just hanging around the camera department and I was I talked to the, the lady who had actually sent it on and I said, Frankie, did we ever hear back from from the, from the States about that footage? And she said, no, no, um, I'll call them in the morning, first thing, because remember, we're on the East Coast. And she, so she called Ohio uh, the next day and uh, I think that afternoon or whenever it was, she, she, you know, she calls me into the office and she said, she said, guess what? I said, what? She said, they deny ever receiving the film. Oh, no. Their, uh, she said to them, what about the film that we send you? And their response was, excuse me, but what film are you talking about? But we know that there's documentation that they signed, that they did receive it. Oh, so, no. you know, there's always been stories about a cover-up that uh, we have been denied access to the truth about these things. And that incident made me absolutely convinced of the fact that that was going on. There has been a cover-up, and it's been going on for years. That was the proof of the pudding for me. They denied receiving this footage, and it was very, very, very real. And I don't think they wanted that footage to get out to the press or to anyone at all, no. because it was an... In you couldn't explain what that was. Right. You know, so UFOs, and you know, I um, have always been interested in in UFOs and uh, the, the whole mythology about extraterrestrial contact with the Earth. Uh, and in tribal areas, I've often talked to people about that. And in many, many tribal areas, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, the people from the other world, they come here. Yeah, yes, they come, they come, they come. There are many different kinds, you know. Oh my it's as though that's just how it is. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. Absolutely commonplace. Well, I'd like to now talk about your book, Forever in My Veins, how yes. film led me to the mysterious world of the African shaman. Mm. And so this is about your journey from seeing this soothsayer mm. up to, you know, the, the present day, kind of a memoir, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. What What else can you tell us about? Well, it? let me let me tell you that, uh, uh, Christy, the the glue that holds the whole book together mm -hmm. really is built around this whole shamanic thing, uh, this whole shamanic story, mm -hmm. um, because um, I was uh, eventually diagnosed with a very serious illness here in LA, and so as part of my own healing process. I have investigated for myself the the healing system of the African Sangoma. And I'll tell you how all that came about. I was working on a series. I think I was working on either Mysteries of the Bible for A&E uh, or, uh, or ancient, ancient Mysteries for one of the cable companies. And one night I, we were at home here. The kids were doing their homework upstairs. And my wife and I, we'd had dinner, and I was, I think I was watching Jeopardy, actually. And um, it was a hot Californian evening, and my wife looked down, and she said, 
why are your ankles so swollen tonight? And I said, what? And I looked down and I said, oh my God, you're right. My, my ankles are swollen. You know, what's that about? So I, I, I thought I better get that attended to. And I called my doctor and he, he saw me a couple of days. He said, we better find out what's going on with you because you shouldn't be having this, not at your age. Um, we better send you to either a cardiac guy. It may be a heart problem, but it could be a kidney problem. So I, I went to see a nephrologist, a kidney specialist. He, he took one look at me, did some blood tests, and he said, we need to do a biopsy on you. We need to do a biopsy on your kidneys because I think you've got a major kidney disease. And I thought, what? And we... And then it turned out that the biopsy proved that both of my kidneys were being affected. And it, the, the doctors called it idiopathic, which is a med, med, medical term for, what, for we don't know what's causing it. Right, right, right. And it was my immune system, as far as they were concerned, were turning against me. My own immune system was trying to destroy my kidneys. Yes. Now what? Well... He said, you know, because it's idiopathic and because your immune system is behaving the way it is, the only treatment we can offer you is to suppress your immune system, to stop it from being harmful to you. But that means that we're going to have to destroy your immune system. Right. So you will have no immunity. Anybody has a cold in the room or a cough or whatever, and if they have anything wrong with them, you're going to get it. But at least it may stop your immune system from destroying your kidneys. Right. So they put me on this regimen, this cocktail of stuff that I thought I was going to die from this stuff. I felt as though my body was absolutely on fire. So what they did was they did suppress my immune system big time with this, this, this cocktail. And I felt absolutely rotten. In fact, one particular day, I went down to watch the filming of uh, the movie Titanic just across the border in, in Mexico. And I was very excited to go to, to see this. Um, and I'd got, uh, you know, a, a permit from 20th Century Fox to go on the lot. And uh, when we got down there, I was feeling so ill. I couldn't even walk around the, the studio. I felt so terrible. It was absolutely awful. So when I got back to LA, I went back to see my nephrologist and I said, you know what? I'd rather die from the illness than from your cure because this stuff is killing me. I can't do this. So he said to me, well, then, you know, you're going to, within 10 years, you're either going to be on dialysis or you'll be dead. Uh, one of the two. You take your pick. And I said, uh, well, let's see what we can do. So anyway, they tried other alternative medication, but things were not improving. Now I have a friend who lives up the road in a place called uh, Santa Barbara, which is just north of LA. He is a general surgeon. He's exactly my age. He's also white, and he's also from South Africa. And he and I have been friends for years. Now, Dave has always been very, very interested in the healing paradigm of the Sangomas in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And he's always wanted to know about how and why they are they are capable of finding medication in the bush that heals as effectively as Western medication. So he wanted to study their methods and their systems. And so he started to study the way of the, of the African shaman. Mm -hmm. 
And so he was very, very open to uh, the shamanistic uh, um, systems and their healing methods. And he was really very, very heavily into it. And he found himself a teacher in Swaziland, which is a country that's in between, between South Africa and Mozambique. There's this landlocked country called Swaziland, mountain kingdom, absolutely magnificent place. And that's where his teacher was, who taught him the ways of the shaman. And because he was so open to the healing methods of the shaman in Africa, and he knew that I knew quite a lot about that because of the television series I did. He knew about that that woman who predicted all those things, and he said to me, you know what? I'm going back to my teacher in October this year to spend uh, a few weeks with him, learning more about the, the methods that he uses and which berries and herbs and roots he picks and what he why he grinds them up and what he uses, which one's for. Why don't you come with me? And let's see if he has an answer. And I said, Dave, are you serious? You, as a surgeon, you telling me that I've got to go back to Africa, to the bush, and go to a mud hut and live with you and consult a witch doctor? Are you kidding me? And he said, no, I'm not. I'm absolutely serious. That's what you need to do. Those guys may have an answer for you. He says, I, I know Western allopathic medicine very well, but I also am learning a lot about the, uh, the, the shamanistic ways, what the Sangomas do. Let's go and find out if they have an answer for you. It was the best thing he ever did. Because I went with him, and I met his teacher in Swaziland, and the first thing he did was he looked at me and he said, he looked at me, he didn't know why I was, you know, he just knew that Dave was bringing a guest. He, he said, uh, and he lived in a little compound of, you know, huts in the middle of nowhere. Uh, near a small town called Manzini. He looks at me and he says, you are not well. You are not well. Tomorrow morning we throw the bones, we see what's wrong with you. And he did. And he threw the bones the next day and he said, oh, he said, it's your kidneys. How he knew that, I have no idea. He says, it's your kidneys. And you need cleansing. And you need a very, very powerful Sangoma. And I know a Sangoma more powerful than me who can help you. We will arrange for you to go and meet him. And he will perform a ceremony called a Femba. F-E-M-B-A. The, the word itself terrified me. I thought, what on earth is he talking about? You know. Anyway, oh my a day or so later, he takes me into the to, to, through the trading store in this little town nearby where I'm introduced to this little man who spoke no English. And, uh, you know, I shook his hand and he was, it was a very limp, very meek, mild, softly spoken guy, short, no sense of energy at all about him, just very polite and very sweet and very nice. And, it, it, and I'm told that this is the man who's going to perform the Femba. And a price was agreed for him to perform the ritual on me and that it would be done on a certain evening up in his, in his own compound, way up in the mountains. So comes the day, the appointed day, we, we go, trundle along on the Land Rover up into the mountains to his compound. His name was Mr. Mazia. And we go to Mazia's compound where he, and he, held, he had about four or five wives Lots of kids running around. It's a polygamous society. And um, and we arrived there, and two of his older, I think they must have been his sons, 
probably you know like in their late teens 18 19 years old they 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 spoke perfect english and um they welcomed me and they said oh welcome 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 uh, we are expecting you and my father is will be ready for you shortly and they show me into now my friend dave cumes who's my my friend from santa barbara he's with me and another guy uh uh who always we all, you always need a translator and um they show me into this big round hut with a thatched roof. Nothing inside except a pole holding up the roof and a little fire and a little brazier in the middle of the in the middle of the room, and these and, and filled with women, with children, little babies, some of them suckling on their breasts, others tied to their backs, you know, papoose style. And they all of these women are drumming. And you have this rhythmic drumming going on. It was it, it was almost, you know, um, uh, hypnotic mm -hmm. and these two guys said to me you must strip down completely and sit down in the middle of the hut by that fire I said well can I keep my underwear on he says yeah that's all nothing else and that's all I wore and um, and I didn't feel the slightest bit of embarrassment in front of all of these women and they took no notice of me at all none whatsoever that's how Africa is. Things just happen. That's the way things are. And that's what happens, you know. <laughs> and I sit down in the middle of this hut with my legs stretched out towards the fire. And I'm like very unsure about what's going to happen. And then these two guys disappeared. And about 10 minutes later, they come back into this hut dressed in their, in their tribal finery with beads and uh, cocoon rattles tied around their ankles, each one holding a spear. And they stand at a doorway on the far end of this hut and um, just standing there. And I'm wondering what is going to happen. I'm looking at my friend Dave. He's looking at me. We're not sure what's going to happen. And then suddenly, wah, is the scream. And through the doorway comes this little man, Mazia, that I met in the in that at the trading store the other day but he wasn't that meek mild little guy that i had met before right. he, he, something had overcome something had taken over his body his oh, eyes were bright and and shiny and you know he was filled you could feel the energy from this guy and he had you know a, a, a grass skirt on he had beads on and he just, ah, and he stared at me like that with these big eyes. And he dropped down to onto all fours and came crawling across the floor. He had become almost an animal. And the look to me was like he had become a hyena. And he came walking on all fours across the floor to me. Mm -hmm. And he started to sniff, smell me all the way from my feet all the way up to my body, grunting and groaning. It was terrifying. With the drumming and this grunting and this groaning and this man who I'm sure was possessed by something. And when he got to where my left kidney was on the left side of my body, he starts to heave. He wants to be sick. And these two guys came running over to him with a little barrel and he vomited into the barrel. Wow. And then he took his breath back and, you know, and then he started to smell me all the way over my ears, my head, everywhere. And when he got to my right kidney, he starts to heave again and vomits into this barrel. Oh, my goodness. And um, 
you know, smells me all the way to, down to my feet. And then he stood up like this with his arms folded and he lectures me. I have no idea what he was saying because it's in Swazi. It was translated to me afterwards what he told me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you in a minute what that was. And, uh, and then he left. And, uh, you know, these two young guys came to me and they said, you can get dressed now. Um, your illness is gone now. Uh, it has been removed. And I said, how? And he said, it has been removed. My father, he's taken it away from you. So I said, oh, okay. You know, and I got dressed. I was really very nervous, very disturbed by the whole thing. The woman stopped drumming. They all went in various directions. They left. It's now like midnight. And we get back in the Land Rover. Dave and I look at each other. We're, we're each confused. Um, and our interpreter is with us there. And we drive back to uh, to to his teacher's compound. You know, after, and about two hours later, we get there, fall into our sleeping bags in the little hut where we were staying. And the next morning, the guy, David's, David's teacher, his Sangoma teacher, had a sort of you know smile on his face. And he calls me. And he said, Come on over here. Now remember, there's no, there were no phones, telegraph, cables, any method of communication at all. There's no electricity there. And he calls me and he says to me, "Come into my Ndumba. The Ndumba is his medicine hut. That's where he keeps all his medicines, his herbs and whatever else, and all his accoutrements, and his bones on the grass mat, like like they all do." And he says, "Sit down." How he knew all this, how he knew what went on the night before, I have no idea. But this is what he says. He says, what Maziah told you when he was standing there last night, when he lectured you, was that your grandfather from your father's side was summoned and was with you. And he is going to heal you and keep you well for the rest of your life. But you have to remember him. And the way you do that is every time you go for a walk or you leave the house, you must use a cane. You must use a cane that is carved from the wood of a Mopani tree, which is a local tree. It's a very sturdy, strong wood. And you have to think of your grandfather. Now, I've never met my grandfather. My grandfather died in Northern Europe, in Latvia. I never met the guy. But I'm told that he was with me that night mm-hmm. and that he will protect me if I use this cane symbolizing his presence with me all the time and he will take care of me. Yeah. And not only that, but then he says, and here is the cane. And he reaches into the shadow behind him in his hut and he said, I knew two weeks ago that someone would need this cane. And so I carved it. And now I know it's you. And he hands me the cane. I mean, the whole thing is like completely out of a Steven Spielberg movie. It's the end. It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's that that weird, you know. Um, And how does he know? How did he know that? How does he know any of this? I have no idea. Anyway. The point is that I have I do not go anywhere without that cane. I love going to the Mojave Desert near here and going for walks in the desert. It's my best thing. And I always take that cane and I always think, Grandfather, I be with me and help me through this. Now I tell my nephrologist all of this when I come back to LA. 
And of course, you can imagine his reaction. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You can imagine what he had to say. Oh. He says, yeah, yeah, you and your witch doctors, you know. <laughs> oh. Don't give me any of that. He didn't believe a word of any of this that stuff, right? Right. But you know what? That illness was, I was diagnosed with this illness 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. He told me that within 10 years, I'd either be on dialysis or I'd be dead. I'm still around. And after I wrote this book of mine, Forever in My Veins, where I tell this whole story, I gave him a copy of the book. And he said to me after he read the book, he said, I thought you were crazy at the time. He said, but and now I understand. I totally understand. You've changed my whole perspective of what healing and medicine is all about. You've given me a whole new perspective to think about, and I thank you for that. And you are living proof of it. And if what you've told me and what you've written about is true, you're the living proof of of all of that. You've opened my mind. And I said, yeah, you know, but you wouldn't have believed me uh, at the time. He said, no, I mean, you know, it sounds sounds like something out of a movie. And And he said, but obviously, Whatever it is that happened has been has worked and does work, and you 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 you're you're you're, you're the living proof of that. Um, right. So you know um, the the I think that the the takeaway of all of this, as I describe it in the book, is that there's so much more to the world than we know. There are so many other methods of going about our lives and of doing things and of healing ourselves and of putting out energy and of partaking of energies and 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 getting involved in just the way the world and the universe and the cosmos works and just expanding one's vision. You know, I've done so many amazing things. I've had an amazing life and I've been very, very lucky. I've been very blessed. I don't want to sound arrogant about it at all or boastful, but really, I mean, I've done you you are I've I've done so many shows about so many things that I have learned that the universe is far, far more strange and more wonderful than we can ever begin to believe or understand or quantify or measure. There's just no way that we can know it all. It's, I often think about cutting my way through um, you know, a field of, of tall corn. The deeper you go, you think you're getting to the other side of the field, but actually the deeper you go, the more you realize how big this field is and you just keep cutting away. There's still so much more to know. There's still so much more to learn. There's still so many more lessons that can await all of us. And as long as we go about our lives in a, with, with an open mind and to be respectful of others, even about things that may sound completely crazy, just, just think outside the box and be respectful of other people's beliefs, you know, uh, I think that that, for me, has been the takeaway lesson of, of it all. Uh, we don't know it all. And our systems and our institutions and our universities and our educational uh, um, establishments really don't know it all. There's still so much more to learn. You know, I've worked with NASA and I've worked with amazing companies. I've worked with Princeton University and the National Academy of Sciences. But some of the wisest people you know, wear grass skirts and can't speak English and live in mud huts in the boondocks in Africa. 
Um, it really is so. And it's just been an amazing learning experience. And I think we can all, that's what I'm hoping people will take away from this book. You know, open, keep your mind open and be respectful of others. And as we talked about before, we, I'm not sure if you were recording at the time, but what we want to radiate today, mm-hmm. you know, is is a sense of compassion. And I think compassion for all forms of life and for each other and for cultures that we don't even begin to understand is so important. And there's more, I think, What's 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 so sad about the world today, and I'm and and I speak, you know, I'm a grandfather, right? Is that there's been this great disconnect between us and nature, and we need to get back to the natural world, and we need to have a connection again with nature. Put the tablets away, put the iPhones away, put all the games away, unplug all the electronics, and go away for a weekend and reconnect with the natural world and sense something about what nature has to offer because there is so much in nature to learn from. Smell the roses, smell the forest, smell the pine trees, climb the mountain, sail the river in a canoe, spend a quiet evening staring at the stars. I mean, that's what we really need to be doing. That in itself is a healing process. And be respectful of the other creatures who share the world with us, you know, uh, we aren't the top of the heap purely because we've got opposing thumbs and we can use tools and, you know, <laughs> work a wrench doesn't make us better than anyone else. And I think that it's about being compassionate to all life forms will just make us a better species and learn humility mm-hmm. and and heal yourself from within because of that. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a wonderful message for us all. I do believe in the innate ability of the body to heal itself when we are in balance with nature, with the universe, and even with what with our ancestors who are inside of us. And right. I think your story is very inspiring and absolutely fascinating. Again, the book is Forever in My Veins, How Film Led Me to the Mysterious World of the African Shaman by Lionel Friedberg. And your, your website um, yes. May I plug it? Please. Lionel, yes. LionelFriedberg.com. Right. Uh, yes. Information there. Yes, and it's then, all there. And they can go to my, uh, to my other social media sites. And there are lots of interviews there, but also reviews of the book. And, uh, and they can read passages from the, from the book as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. We'll put those in the show notes so that people can find them. And, of course, this book is from John Hunt, John Hunt Publishing. Um, right. Division O books, I believe. Zero books, they call themselves. Yeah, it's zero uh, books. Yeah, it's a b- British publisher, um, yes. but they they have offices all over the world, and so the, the book is available now um, on. If your local bookstore is open, I do you always suggest we support local, you know, local bookstores. Um, but Thanks. folks who are living in remote areas can get it from Amazon uh, or from Barnes & Noble, you know, online. Uh, it's available everywhere. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, Lionel. I am just humbled to be able to sit down and speak with you today. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, Christy, it's been my pleasure, and I thank you so much for having me on the show. I do really 
wish you well and let's radiate this compassion let's just keep that going yeah oh i love that Radiate Wellness is a community of holistic and alternative healers and consultants based in the Kansas City area dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.